This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is a coronal plane spinal deformity which most commonly presents in adolescent girls from ages 10 to 18. Diagnosis is made with full-length standing PA and lateral spine radiographs. Treatment can be observation, bracing, or surgical management depending on the skeletal maturity of the patient, magnitude of deformity, and curve progression. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is the most common type of scoliosis. There's an incidence of 3% for curves between 10 to 20 degrees and an incidence of 0.3% for curves greater than 30 degrees. Moving on to demographics, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis most commonly presents in children 10 to 18 years of age. There is a 10 to 1 female to male ratio for curves greater than 30 degrees. There is a 1 to 1 male to female ratio for small curves. And know that right thoracic curves are the most common. Left thoracic curves are rare and indicate an MRI to rule out a cyst or a syrinx. Moving on to etiology, the pathophysiology of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is unknown. However, potential causes are multifactorial, can be related to hormonal issues like melatonin, brainstem issues, proprioception disorder, platelet disorders, calmodulin, as well as abnormal development of neurocentral synchondrosis or NCS. This is a cartilaginous plate that forms between the centrum and the posterior neural arches. Closure occurs in a characteristic order. The cervical neurocentral synchondrosis by 5 to 6 years old, the lumbar neurocentral synchondrosis by 11 to 12 years old, and the thoracic neurocentral synchondrosis by 14 to 17 years old. Know that most patients with adolescent idiopathic scoliosis have a positive family history. In terms of curve progression, risk factors for progression at presentation can be related to curve magnitude, remaining skeletal growth, and curve type. So starting with curve magnitude, greater than 25 degrees before skeletal maturity will continue to progress. After skeletal maturity, greater than 50 degrees of a thoracic curve will progress 1 to 2 degrees per year, and a greater than 40 degree lumbar curve will progress 1 to 2 degrees per year. As far as risk factors for progression and presentation related to remaining skeletal growth, know that younger age defined as less than 12 years at presentation is a risk factor, Tanner stage that is less than 3 for females, Risser stage of 0 to 1, and know that Risser 0 covers the first two-thirds of the pubertal growth spurt and correlates with the greatest velocity of skeletal linear growth. Another risk factor for progression and presentation related to remaining skeletal growth includes open triradiate cartilage as well as peak growth velocity, and know that peak growth velocity is the best predictor of curve progression. In females, it occurs just before menarche and before Risser stage 1. Know that girls usually reach skeletal maturity 1.5 years after menarche. Remember that peak growth velocity most closely correlates with the Tanner-Whitehouse 3 RUS method of skeletal maturity determination. If the curve is greater than 30 degrees before peak height velocity, there is a strong likelihood of the need for surgery. Finally, moving on to curve type as a risk factor for progression at presentation, thoracic curves are more likely to progress than lumbar curves, and double curves are more likely to progress than single curves. Moving on to the classification of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, the ones to know include the King-Moe classification and the Lenke classification. The King-Moe classification is a five-part classification to describe thoracic curve patterns and help guide surgeons in planting Harrington instrumentation. The Lenke classification is a more comprehensive classification based on the PA, lateral, and supine bending films. This helps to decide upon which curves need to be included within the fusion construct. 
Moving on to the presentation of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, in terms of school screening, patients are often referred from a school screening where a 7-degree curve on a scoliometer during an Adams forward bending test is considered abnormal. Note that 7 degrees correlates with 20 degrees of a coronal plane curve. Moving on to physical exam, special tests include an Adams forward bending test, which we just mentioned, and a forward bending sitting test. In the setting of an Adams forward bending test, note that an axial plane deformity indicates a structural curve. In the setting of a forward bending sitting test, you can eliminate leg length inequality as a cause of scoliosis. Other important findings on physical examination include leg length inequality, midline skin defects like hairy patches, dimples, and nevi, which are all signs of spinal dysraphism. Other important findings on physical exam include shoulder height differences, truncal shift, rib rotational deformity or rib prominence, waist asymmetry and pelvic tilt, cafe au lait spots, which may suggest neurofibromatosis, foot deformities, specifically cavo varus, which can suggest neural axial abnormalities and warrant an MRI, and asymmetric abdominal reflexes, in which case you should perform an MRI to rule out syringomyelia. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a standing PA and lateral. A Cobb angle of greater than 10 degrees is defined as scoliosis, and this has an intra-inter-observer error of 3 to 5 degrees. Moving on to spinal balance, note that coronal balance is determined by alignment of the C7 plumb line to the central sacral vertical line. Sagittal balance is based on the C7 plumb line from the center of C7 to the posterior superior corner of S1. Moving on to the stable zone, this is a zone between the lines drawn vertically from the lumbosacral facet joints. Moving on to stable vertebrae, these are the most proximal vertebrae that is most closely bisected by a central sacral vertical line. With respect to neutral vertebrae, these are rotationally neutral, which will manifest as spinous processes being of equal distance to the pedicles on PA X-ray. With respect to end vertebrae, this is defined as the vertebra that is most tilted from the horizontal apical vertebra. And speaking of apical vertebra, this refers to the disc or vertebra deviated farthest from the center of the vertebral column. Finally, the clavicle angle is the best predictor of postoperative shoulder balance. As far as MRI, this should extend from the posterior fossa to the conus, and the purpose is to rule out intraspinal anomalies. Indications to obtain MRI include an atypical curve pattern, specifically a left thoracic curve, short angular curve, and apical kyphosis. Other indications include rapid progression of a curve, excessive kyphosis, structural abnormalities, neurologic symptoms or pain, foot deformities, asymmetric abdominal reflexes, and know that a syrinx is associated with abnormal abdominal reflexes and a curve without significant rotation. Moving on to treatment of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, this is based on skeletal maturity of the patient, magnitude of the deformity, and curve progression. So treatment can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation alone or bracing. Indications for observation alone include a Cobb angle of less than 25 degrees. As far as the technique, be sure to obtain serial radiographs to monitor for progression. Bracing is indicated when there's a Cobb angle from 25 to 45 degrees. This is only effective for a flexible deformity in a skeletally immature patient defined as a research stage 0, 1, or 2. Know that the goal is to stop progression, not to correct the deformity. As far as outcomes, know that there's a 50% reduction in the need for surgery with compliant brace wear of at least 13 hours per day. Know that poor prognosis with brace treatment is associated with a poor in-brace correction, hypokyphosis, which is a relative contraindication, male gender, obesity, and non-compliance, and know that effectiveness is dose-related. The Sanders staging system predicts the risk of curve progression despite bracing to greater than 50 degrees in lanky type 1 and type 3 curves. 
The Sander staging system uses the anteroposterior hand radiograph and curve magnitude to assess the risk of progression, despite bracing. Operative treatment includes a posterior spinal fusion, anterior spinal fusion, or an anterior and posterior spinal fusion. A posterior spinal fusion is indicated when the Cobb angle is greater than 45 degrees, it can be used for all types of idiopathic scoliosis, and remains the gold standard for thoracic and double major curves in most cases. Anterior spinal fusion is best for thoracolumbar and lumbar cases with a normal sagittal profile. Finally, in terms of an anterior and posterior spinal fusion, this is indicated for large curves defined as greater than 75 degrees or for stiff curves. It's also indicated in younger age patients defined as a risk grade zero, girls less than 10 years old, and boys less than 13 years old. And this is done in order to prevent what's known as the crankshaft phenomenon. Now let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with bracing, this is recommended for 16 to 23 hours per day until skeletal maturity or surgical intervention is deemed necessary. Know that the actual wear minimum is 12 hours that is required to slow progression. As far as brace types, know that in the setting of curves with an apex above T7, a Milwaukee brace, otherwise known as a cervical thoracolumbosacral orthosis, extends to the neck for an apex above T7. In the setting of a curve with the apex at T7 or below, you can use a TLSO, a Boston-style brace, which is under the arm, or a Charleston bending brace, which is a curved night brace. Note that bracing success is defined as less than 5 degrees of curve progression. Bracing failure is defined as 6 degrees or more curve progression at orthotic discontinuation or skeletal maturity. Note that absolute progression to greater than 45 degrees either before or at skeletal maturity or discontinuation favors surgery. Remember that skeletal maturity is defined as a risk stage 4, less than 1 centimeter change in height over 2 visits 6 months apart, and 2 years post-menarche. Moving on to posterior spinal fusion, as far as fusion levels, with respect to goals, know that the fusion should include enough levels to adequately maintain sagittal and coronal balance while being as minimal as safely possible to preserve motion. A typical fusion will be from the proximal end vertebra to one or two levels cephalad to the stable vertebra. Double and triple major curves fuse to the distal end vertebra. The Harrington technique recommends one level above and two levels below the end vertebra if these levels fall within the stable zone. The Mo technique recommends fusion to the neutral vertebra. The Lenke technique recommends including all major curves in the fusion and minor curves that are not flexible or archiphotic. At the L5 level, Cochrane found an increased incidence of low back pain with fusion to L5 and to a lesser extent L4. Therefore, whenever possible, avoid fusion to L4 and L5. As far as the pelvis, it is almost never required to fuse to the pelvis in idiopathic scoliosis. With respect to pedicle screw fixation, know that screw insertional torque correlates with the resistance to screw pullout. Resistance to screw pullout increases by undertapping by 1 mm. In terms of curve correction, know that segmental pedicle screw fixation allows increased coronal plane correction while lessening the need for anterior releases. An anterior spinal fusion with instrumentation has advantages and disadvantages. The advantages is better correction while saving lumbar fusion levels. However, the disadvantage is increased risk of pseudoarthrosis when thoracic hyperkyphosis is present. In terms of fusion levels in the setting of an anterior spinal fusion with instrumentation, you will typically fuse from end vertebra to end vertebra. Now, let's quickly talk about neurologic monitoring. So monitoring with somatosensory evoked potentials, or SSEPs, and or motor evoked potentials, or MEPs, is now the standard of care. Motor evoked potentials can provide an intraoperative warning of impending spinal cord dysfunction. Neurologic event is defined as a drop in amplitude of greater than 50%. If neurologic injury occurs intraoperatively, consider checking for technical problems, 
check the blood pressure and elevate if low, check hemoglobin and transfuse as necessary, lessen slash reverse the correction, administer the Stagnaris wake-up test, and or remove instrumentation if the spine is stable. Now let's go over some complications related to adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. The ones to know include neurologic injury, pseudoarthrosis, infection, flat back syndrome, the crankshaft phenomenon, SMA syndrome, and hardware failure. So in terms of neurologic injury, know that paraplegia is seen in 1 in 1,000 cases, and there is an increased risk with kyphosis, excessive correction, and sublaminar wires. The risk of pseudoarthrosis is 1-2%, to 2%, and presents as late pain, deformity progression, and hardware failure. Know that an asymptomatic pseudoarthrosis with no pain and no loss of correction should be observed. Infection is seen in 1-2% to 2% of cases and presents as late pain. The incision often looks clean. Propionobacterium acnes is the most common organism for delayed infection, and remember this organism requires two weeks for culture incubation. For treatment, you should attempt IND with maintenance of hardware, if not loose, and within six months. Another potential complication is flat back syndrome, and this can present with early fatigability and back pain due to loss of lumbar lordosis. This is rare now that segmental instrumentation addresses sagittal plane deformities. There is a decreased incidence with rod contouring in the sagittal plane and compression slash distraction techniques. In the setting of flat back syndrome, treat these patients with revision surgery utilizing posterior closing wedge osteotomies. Note that anterior releases prior to osteotomies aid in maintenance of correction. The crankshaft phenomenon is another potential complication. This is a rotational deformity of the spine created by continued anterior spinal growth in the setting of a posterior spinal fusion. This can occur in very young patients when posterior spinal fusion is performed alone and the anterior column is allowed continued growth. This is avoided by performing anterior discectomy and fusion with posterior fusion in very young patients. Moving on to SMA syndrome or superior mesenteric artery syndrome, this involves compression of the third part of the duodenum due to narrowing of the space between the SMA and the aorta. The SMA arises from the anterior aspect of the aorta at the level of the L1 vertebrae. This presents with symptoms of bowel obstruction in the first postoperative week. This is associated with electrolyte abnormalities, nausea, bilious vomiting, and weight loss. Risk factors include a height percentile of less than 50% and a weight percentile of less than 25%. Other risk factors include sagittal kyphosis. SMA syndrome should be treated with an NG tube and IV fluids. Finally, in terms of hardware failure, know that late rod breakage can signify a pseudoarthrosis. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. So in terms of natural history, there is an increased incidence of acute and chronic pain in adults if left untreated. Curves greater than 90 degrees are associated with cardiopulmonary dysfunction, early death, pain, and decreased self-image. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. The neurocentral synchondrosis, or NCS, develops between which two spinal elements and closes in which order? And the choices are 1, centrum and anterior neural arches, and the order is cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. 2, centrum and anterior neural arches, and the order is cervical, lumbar, and thoracic. 3, centrum and posterior neural arches, and the order is cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. 4, centrum and posterior neural arches, and the order is lumbar, thoracic, and cervical and 5, centrum and posterior neural arches, and the order is cervical, lumbar, and thoracic. The correct answer to this question is 5, centrum and posterior neural arches, and the order is cervical, lumbar, and thoracic. 
so the neurocentral synchondrosis develops between the centrum and posterior neural arches. Closure occurs first in the cervical spine, followed by the lumbar spine, and then the thoracic spine. The NCS is a cartilaginous growth plate that has been implicated as a potential cause of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. The closure of the synchondroses is dependent upon the location of the vertebra. The cervical NCS closes by 5 to 6 years old, and then the lumbar NCS closes by 11 to 12 years old. And finally, the thoracic NCS closes by 14 to 17 years old. Blakemore et al. published a study on the growth patterns of the neurocentral synchondrosis in immature cadaveric vertebra. They found that the cervical NCS closed first with completion around 5 years of age, the lumbar NCS was nearly fully closed by age 11, and only the thoracic region remained open through age 17 years. Additionally, the left and right NCS closed simultaneously, and in all regions of the spine, the NCS appeared to close sooner in males than in females. Zhang et al. performed a morphometric analysis of the neurocentral synchondrosis using MRI in the normal skeletally immature spine. They found that the NCS developmental stage is age and vertebral level dependent. At 4 years of age, they found that the NCS had approximate 75% closure in the lumbar region, while the thoracic NCS remained nearly open. At 10 years of age, the NCS in the lumbar region had near 100% closure, whereas the thoracic NCS demonstrated approximate 50% closure. Moving on to the next question. A 12-year-old female is referred to your clinic by her pediatrician for scoliosis. Standing scoliosis radiographs demonstrate a 35-degree right thoracic curve and a risk stage of zero. She reports that she is premenarchal. After discussing treatment options with her and her parents, the decision is made to proceed with bracing. What is the minimum number of hours of bracing during the day that will maximize her chances of success? And the choices are 1, 4 hours, 2, 6 hours, 3, 13 hours, 4, 18 hours, and 5, 24 hours. The correct answer to this question is 3, 13 hours. So to achieve a success rate of 90%, braces should be worn at least 12.9 hours daily. This patient is skeletally immature based on her research stage and menstrual history, and her curve falls between 25 and 45 degrees, making her a candidate for bracing. Bracing success in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, or AIS, is defined as preventing curve progression to a surgical threshold that is 50 degrees. Bracing can be effective in children who are not skeletally mature and have flexible curves. Typically, females reach skeletal maturity 18 months following menarche. Bracing is not intended to correct scoliosis, but to prevent curve progression. Poor in-brace correction, hypokyphosis, male gender, obesity, and non-compliance are all associated with a poor prognosis. Weinstein et al. conducted a prospective cohort study, that is, the bracing in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, also known as the BRACE trial, looking at the effectiveness of bracing for appropriate candidates with adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Patients were asked to wear their brace for at least 18 hours a day, with treatment failure defined as curve progression to 50 degrees or more, and treatment success defined as curve progression to less than 50 degrees at skeletal maturity. The study identified a dose-dependent relationship, and brace wear for an average of at least 12.9 hours per day was associated with success rates of greater than 90%. Overall, bracing demonstrated a 72% success rate versus 48% with observation alone. Rahman et al. designed a prospective trial to demonstrate the efficacy of using a temperature-sensing monitor, which is known as a cricket, to determine brace wear compliance. Patients were asked to record the amount of time they spent in their braces in a diary, and this was compared to the data obtained by the cricket monitor. The cricket was found to be a reliable, accurate, and sensitive method to determine brace compliance.
To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, 4 hours, and answer 2, 6 hours are incorrect, as braces should be worn for a minimum of 12.9 hours a day to achieve a 90% success rate based on the brace trial. Answer 4, 18 hours, and answer 5, 24 hours are incorrect, as diminishing returns are associated with brace wear beyond 12.9 hours, as bracing success is 93% when worn longer than 17.7 hours a day. And moving on to the final question. An 11-year-old male is referred for evaluation of scoliosis by his primary care physician. He has a normal birth and development history and denies any neurologic deficits or pain. On physical examination, he is neurologically intact with normal reflexes and tone. A PA radiograph exhibits a left thoracic curve. What is the next best step? And the choices are 1. Custom orthosis prescription to initiate bracing. 2. Physical therapy referral and observation. 3. Bending and lumbar oblique radiographs. 4. Total spine CT. And 5. Total spine MRI. The correct answer to this question is 5. Total spine MRI. So a left thoracic curve is an abnormal finding and warrants further workup with the total axis MRI in order to rule out concomitant neurologic abnormalities such as a spinal cord cyst and or syrinx. In adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, the most commonly occurring curve is a right thoracic curve. Left thoracic curves are not as common and warrants total axis MRI in order to rule out concomitant central axis abnormalities. This is imperative not only during initial workup, but most importantly, for operative planning. Spiegel et al. performed a retrospective radiographic review on 41 patients with scoliosis associated with a Chiari-1 malformation and or syringomyelia. Approximately 50% of patients had an atypical pattern, that is left thoracic, double thoracic, triple, and long right thoracic. The authors recommended that MRI should be considered in these patients. Gillingham et al. provides a thorough review of early onset scoliosis and notes the relatively high incidence of concurrent central axis abnormalities even in patients with normal neurologic exams. Rates have been reported upwards of 21.7% with malformations including Chiari type 1, dural ectasias, syrinx, and spinal cord cysts. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1. Custom orthosis prescription to initiate bracing is incorrect as custom orthosis and non-operative treatment is not the best option nor the next best step. Answer 2, physical therapy referral and observation is incorrect, as physical therapy will have no bearing on the treatment of this patient's thoracic curve. Answer 3, bending and lumbar oblique radiographs are incorrect, as bending radiographs may be helpful further down the treatment line, however, at this current time, is not the next best step. Finally, answer 4, total spine CT is incorrect, as total spine CT may help if any bony abnormalities or failure to formations are noted. However, those are more typical in congenital or very early onset cases and is not the next best step here. That's all for this review about adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.